Welcome to all of you who are joining us in the broadcast and in the sanctuary this morning. We're glad to have you with us. As we continue to work our way through the book of Isaiah, I'd like to take a few minutes just to show you where we are in this part of Isaiah and where it falls in history so we can better understand what it's telling us about who God is, who God has always been, who God will always be. A couple of weeks ago, we learned about the reign of King Hezekiah, who was one of the few good kings in the Old Testament, unfortunately. And if you remember, Hezekiah's reign was perched between threats of two major superpowers at that time. In Isaiah 36 and 37, we saw that the Lord miraculously saved Hezekiah and the people from an attack by the Assyrians. And then after that, in Isaiah 38, Hezekiah himself almost died from a sickness. But he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord also miraculously healed him. And then in Isaiah 39, the king of Babylon, the other superpower, hears about Hezekiah's amazing recovery, and he sends some people to go and pay a friendly visit. At least that's what they want him to think. After Hezekiah shows these visitors all the riches of their land, all the riches of the temple, the prophet Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and tells them those were actually spies casing the joint, <laughs> seeing what you had to steal. And Isaiah prophesied that there would be one day when all of those riches and all the people would be carted off to Babylon. But that wouldn't happen during Hezekiah's lifetime. Because Hezekiah had surrendered his heart to the Lord, they bypassed the whole Assyrian disaster. But the Lord is telling them without a turning of the people's hearts, they were just going to be heading into another one in the future. And we see 15 years later, after Hezekiah dies, his son Manasseh rebuilds all of the centers of idolatry that his father tore down. And the downward slide resumes. And it's really hard to imagine that, knowing how God had saved them so powerfully not too long ago. But from what we see in Isaiah, it looks like that miracle just made people kind of cocky. Because they started thinking that the reason that God saved them was not because Hezekiah had humbled his heart before the Lord, but because God wanted to protect his own reputation. Because if anything happened to his holy temple, which was in the middle of their city, the other nations might doubt his power, after all. So the people started to see the presence of the temple among them as their insurance policy against disaster. So instead of looking to God to shape their way of life, they started to believe they could be their own way to happiness. Why ask God for anything? Why obey God's commands when I can make my own? And instead of looking to God as the source of meaning for their lives, they began to look for other sources of pleasure, using other people and all kinds of immorality. And if there was any kind of price to be paid from that deviation from the word of God, they'd just go to the temple and offer a few goats and then move on and be their own way, their own source, and their own ransom. And it seemed like God's presence had become to them just an obstacle to work around. And God warned them through the prophet Isaiah that he wouldn't protect that broken system. But the people didn't believe that. Not until the day the Babylonians attacked. And amazingly, they saw God allowed his own temple to fall. And his people, who he had once rescued from slavery, to go into exile. And I can't even express how shocking that that was to the people. Because no matter how unfaithful they had been to God, they never imagined that God would let his own temple be destroyed. I mean, what would the other nations think? See, they knew that no human king would ever make that choice. 
No human king would let his reputation go. They would defend it to the very last bit of their strength. So what does that tell us about God? What did God value more than the honor of his name among the nations? What was worth laying down everything that had been built to his glory for the chance to recover that diamond from the ashes? What was worth that much to God? The heart's of his people. You see, once the temple fell, the people couldn't fake worship anymore. In captivity in Babylon, either they would seek God from the heart or they wouldn't seek him at all. They couldn't just go through the motions anymore and cheating on him in their hearts because there were no motions left to go through. There was no form of ransom for their sin they could even pretend to offer. The temple system was no longer allowed to be the idol that it had become to them. Either they would seek God himself as their God and their only salvation, or they would not. And eventually they'd come to see they needed a way, a source, a ransom that was bigger than anything they could provide themselves. It took a while to get there. This nationwide timeout in exile lasted 70 years. So that generation that had run away from God to serve the deities of foreign cultures were scattered in those foreign cultures. But the next generation soon found their hearts drawn home to God. And really, when you look at it, what it is is the prodigal son story that's written over a whole generation of history. I truly believe when Jesus told that story of the prodigal son, he was telling the true story of the relationship between God and his people, now and forever the real heart of the Father. So this is the prodigal people who had turned away from God and ended up far from home in a foreign land, and eventually they begin to remember how good it had been to live in God's love. And in Jesus' parable, the son who ran so far away from his father didn't decide to go back home again because anyone told him to or scolded him about his mistakes. What made him want to go home was remembering the goodness of his father's heart, even to his servants. And from where he was in the pigsty, he could see what a real gift that had been. What motivated him was hope that his father could want something better for him than what he had chosen for himself. See, what draws our hearts home is the vision that God's forgiveness, God's grace, God's ransom is so much bigger than us, even bigger than our sin. And I bring that up now because so far Isaiah has been almost nothing but warnings and pleadings. But that verse 40, the whole tone of Isaiah changes drastically because there's been a drastic change. While the first part of Isaiah is about trying to get people to avoid exile and repent, second Isaiah, what this is often called, now is speaking to God's people who are already in exile. See, once Babylon carries them off as slaves, destroys the temple, carries off their riches, once they're living in a pigsty far from home, now is not the time for warnings. (laughs) Once you've fallen into disaster, what you need now is hope. What you need to see even now is that this is not the end of the story. Because you have a Father God who when he sees a heart start to return to him, he will run to you. What the people need to see is what God has always wanted for them in the first place. For to be himself the way and the source and the ransom for us. 
So with that whole lot of background, let's get into the word today and see what it has to say. If you'll turn to Isaiah 43, it's on the front cover of your study guide or in your Bible. We're going to unpack a bit of what God is telling us here in 2 Isaiah. This is what God is saying to the exiled people and us today. God says in Isaiah 43, 1, But now, this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel. We need to stop right there because every word, every phrase in that sentence is packed full of meaning. Those words are almost kind of like code language that provide the backstory of God's relationship with these people. So we'll start with Lord. When the word Lord is found in the Bible in all caps, you can translate that as Yahweh, God's name. Because when Moses asks God his name, he says, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. He is the God who is. Basically, that's what he's saying. He is God. God doesn't need any other definition. But then in the very next line, you see that God chooses to define himself relationally as the one who created you, Jacob. God is connecting his eternal story with these descendants of Jacob. So do you remember the story of Jacob from Genesis? He was born grasping the heel of his twin brother Esau, fighting even in the womb to try to be first. His name has the implication of being scrappy and clever, sometimes deceitful, the way that sometimes people use the term the fox. And Jacob's story reflects that. Because over and over again, he uses his cleverness and trickery to try to get what he wants for himself. Not always the greatest example of character. (laughs) And that's why the Bible is so amazing. Because it doesn't even try to portray Jacob as perfect. It just shows him as he is in relationship with the holy God. And the next line presents the code for the rest of that story. God is also he who formed you, Israel. Because did you remember that Israel is the new name that God gave to Jacob? He created Jacob, but he formed the people of Israel from Jacob's line. In Genesis 33, the story goes, knowing in the morning Jacob was going to have to face his brother Esau, who he had wronged, Jacob is afraid. And in the night, an angel of the Lord comes and wrestles with him. And scrappy Jacob refuses to give up. In the end, even while injured, he keeps his hold on that angel of God and he tells him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the angel gives him the blessing of this new name, Israel, which means one who wrestles with God and perseveres. I will not let you go unless you bless me. That is the picture of God's relationship with his people. (laughs) Because God's people have a tendency toward getting derailed into deceit and selfishness and getting ourselves into big trouble. But they also have a kind of scrappy, stubborn love that in spite of everything refuses to let go of him. See, Jacob had been wrestling in fear because he knew he'd done wrong. He knew that if he was his brother Esau, he would want revenge. So in desperation, he was grasping on to the one that he really knew should be trying to give him punishment instead. Because God is a just God. He's not in favor of deception. But this scrappy Jacob won't quit. He knows the Lord is his only hope, and so he holds on, and he won't let go. And in doing so, he receives this completely undeserved blessing. So can you see, this is how God is seeing his people in exile. 
who are crying out to him from Babylon. These people have wandered so far. They've done wrong to others. They've insulted God. They've insulted his name. They've been dragged off into captivity. But there, even there, remembering him, they're grabbing hold of him, and they won't let go. And how does God respond? But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. I imagine at this point Father God reaching out to tossle the hair of his wandering child, saying to himself, what am I going to do with you? You're a scoundrel. You're completely messed up. And I love you. God shows them and us that he can out-stubborn us with his stubborn love. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. God himself has bought you back. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. God himself has claimed you. And then the Lord says in verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now those lines are not just poetry. They're actually the story of God's faithfulness to real people and a promise of that kind of faithfulness to you. Because was God ever with his people to help them safely pass through the water? Yes. Exodus 14, God held back the waters of the Red Sea to help his people escape from slavery into freedom. Did God ever hold back the rivers and keep his people from being swept under the river? Yes. Joshua 4, God held back the Jordan River when it was at flood stage to let Joshua and the ark of God pass safely through. Did God ever let his beloved ones walk through fire and not be burned? Yes. Daniel 3, three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, walked through a fiery furnace rather than bow the knee to anything that was not the living God. And they came out without a single hair singed. And God is the one who has done all of these things for real human beings. And in this passage, he is saying, in the same way that I have been God to them, I am God for you. That no matter what you're facing, even death, he will see you through. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, the people who struggle and wrestle with God, your Savior. He is the one who saves those of us who wrestle with him. He's the one who chooses to define his eternal being and relationship with broken, fallen, scrappy graspers like us. Isaiah 43 goes on to say, I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Cush is in the upper Nile region, the northern Egypt area, and Seba is Cush's son. So these are related tribes of the upper Nile region. And in Exodus 12, we see that Egypt does pay the ransom to release the Hebrew people through the plagues, of course, and then also by giving their jewelry to the Hebrew people as they leave. And in 2 Chronicles 16, under another king long before Hezekiah, God gave his people victory over the Cushites in 2 Chronicles 16. Were not the Cushites and the Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. 
that in these reminders and these phrases and this psalm, God is reminding his people that what he looks for is the heart committed to him, that that's what he treasures above all things. And for a heart that loves him like that, he will give his saving power in ways we would never imagine. In verse 4, he says, Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Now, the people have seen this, of course, in the military victory, but one day that exchange would be with one person in particular. There would be a day when the, that was the last of that kind of exchange, when one Savior, one innocent Messiah would take the place, would be the ransom made for all the people of the world who would receive God's love. And that's what I meant when I said God would give his saving power in ways that no one would imagine. See, to the exiled, God speaks in verse 5, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Where does God find his glory? Was it in the majesty of the temple or the riches that impressed the nations? No. He glories in his children who are called by his name. His glory is in relationship with us. He's the good shepherd who will seek after every sheep who will listen to his voice. So to the exiled people, it was obvious what God meant here. He was going to gather the scattered people from exile, bring them back to the homeland, maybe around a new temple someday. But for us, who've seen God's greater plan in Jesus, there's a deeper meaning there. That God, who has always wanted to be the way and the source and the ransom for his people, will send Jesus to gather all of his people from every corner of the earth by his love for us, that he will be that way and source and ransom. Isaiah 43, 18 and 19, God says, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do not perceive it. I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. That he is making a way in the wilderness, but his way is not ours. And our job is not to carve out a way to get to him or to create a way or to find a way. He's making the way. Our job is just to hang on with all that scrappy in us to the one who is the way. The Gospel of Mark starts by telling us about that. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And then John the Baptist, the messenger says, I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's not an accident that the announcement of God's coming Messiah would be a proclamation that the Waymaker had appeared. One who wouldn't just wash us with earthly water, but cleanse us by the source of God's own holy power, the one who would himself be the ransom to set us free. He is the way and the source and the ransom. He is the way. In John 14, Jesus tells us that he goes to prepare a place for us, and when it's our time, he will come and gather us home to be with him where he is. He says, I am the way and the, source and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father 
but by me, that Jesus himself is the way to his Father God. God is making a way in the wildernesses of this world for broken people like us. And he is also the source. In Isaiah, God said, I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the desert, in the wasteland. And you can't underestimate the importance of that or overestimate the importance of that for people who are desert people. They need water in the desert. And when God's people were wandering in the desert and they needed water, God gave them a water source from the most unexpected place imaginable, right out of a rock, to show them that he's the one who provides life. That living water shows up not from our power, our willpower, or goodness, but by God's presence with us. And Jesus tells that to the woman at the well in his presence with her, that he came to be the source of living water poured right into her life and into ours. That all our fountains are in him. And he just calls us to hold on with scrappy faith to the one who is the source of that new life for us. He is the source and he is the ransom. When God allowed his temple to fall, when he told his people he was about to do something new, he was actually introducing the good news of what was coming. That once they knew that there was a price to be paid to restore them to relationship with God, God showed that he himself would pay that price for their ransom. He would send a rescue for his broken people. And next week we'll hear a little bit more about that ransom that Isaiah prophesies about Jesus in Isaiah 53. An amazing text. That as it was, as it is, as it will always be, God, the faith in God's good heart is what draws us home to him. And we remember that when we hear these phrases in this Psalm 43 of God's word to his people, that when we're stuck in our own times of exile, when all the idols that we have trusted have fallen, when we like Hezekiah have gotten derailed in trusting earthly things that fail us, or like Jacob made a mess of our lives by our own choices, and here today, the prophecy of hope, of God's vision of grace, that he came to speak to us. That the Lord is the God of all those who will wrestle with him. Our Lord is the Savior who has walked with generations through the waters, through the rivers, through the fire, and has led them safely home into his love. Our Lord is the Father who calls us home. Because what matters to him, even more than the glory of his name, is your heart. Our Lord is the one who is the way, whose power is the source of that saving promise, and who himself made the ransom for you in Jesus Christ. And he is waiting for your scrappy heart, trusting with stubborn love and a grace we could never deserve. He's waiting for your heart to tell him, Jesus, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And in his blessing, he will never let go of you, because it was made in his own blood, now and forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to be the way and the source and the ransom for us. Lord, thank you that you laid down your life in order to be a new way for us, that not, your way is not something that we have to find out or create in ourselves, but that when we surrender our hearts to you, that you become the source of all things good in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would teach us by your word to trust you and to trust in your promise for where it is that you will lead us. For all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.